0: Welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast, brought to you by Unincorporated, a higher education agency committed to building awareness and growing enrollment for universities. This podcast provides deans, senior admin, and faculty with the tools, resources, and information they need to grow student interest, design branded content, and launch new programs and courses.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Ian from Unincorporated, and I want to welcome you to a special episode of the Higher Ed Happy Hour. We're dedicating this episode to active learning and what you should think about when approaching learning design for higher education. I'm here with an expert on this topic, Richard Holton. Richard is a writer, an education consultant, an assistant vice provost for learning environments, emeritus at Stanford University, following a 30-year career as an educator and academic technology leader. So delighted to have you on the show today, Richard. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. So we're going to get right to it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you went from writing a critically recognized hypertext, this is a novel 20 years ago, and to now where you find yourself engaged in planning and designing learning spaces. That's quite a trajectory. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I feel I've been really lucky um, insofar as those two trajectories that you described have, um, have kind of co-developed for me. My um, writing career, especially writing with um, new media and my career in academia, have been, um, fortunately, mutually reinforcing. So as a fiction writer, I was an early adopter of new technologies. I mean, I go back to the first Macs in the 80s and including the early web and so on. And likewise, I was teaching writing. And as a writing teacher, I was teaching in and managing early computer classrooms, what we called them then, Uh, at Stanford beginning in the late 1980s. So at the same time that I was exploring hypertext as a mode for writing fiction, which led to my novel, then my novel, by the way, uh, became obsolete, but has been resuscitated and is now available on the web in modern uh, web software. So I was then introducing students to networked interaction, synchronous and asynchronous electronic discussion, the emerging internet, and the web. So in the 1990s, we kind of had the early days of what's come known as blended learning or hybrid learning, where some activities are still taking place in person, face-to-face, co-located, and some activities are starting to happen online outside the physical classrooms. So um, the implications of all this for the design of physical learning spaces became apparent, I guess, quickly. And the first computer classrooms, which some people will remember, were basically designed by technologists. They wanted to put the computers in rows because the other classrooms were in rows, or that was the easiest way to connect to power and internet and so on. So they just copied that. The technology enhanced classroom that we were lucky enough to design at Stanford with a grant from Apple was one of the first that was designed by teachers instead of by technologists. So we put the computers around the perimeter of the room so they weren't in between students. And in the middle, we put movable chairs and tables arranged in a seminar style seating, but tables could be moved around, rearranged for small group work. And the chairs had casters so you could wheel around and um, go to the computers when you wanted to use those. And everything was connected and there was a big display screen and so on. So, so anyway, that was the beginning for me of thinking about designing or redesigning college classrooms for teaching and learning at the same time that I was writing a hypertext novel. Now, I can add that the seed for all this about learning spaces was actually planted for me years before that when I and kind of laid dormant, I guess, because I had taught preschool for a couple of years. That's three to five-year-olds. And that was much earlier in my career. And I had a mentor at the preschool where I mainly taught who was all about learning spaces. And she taught us other teachers to constantly redesign the room, divided into discrete spaces. Each space had to be defined. And in those days we wrote it on an index card, an index card for each space, defining how many people were supposed to be there and what the learning activity was. Was it dramatic play or small motor skills, et cetera. And we, divided the spaces with partitions hung from the ceiling, I guess the fire department would not like that uh, nowadays. But the excitement of the kids when they came in each morning to a different classroom was was incredible. So that was uh, my first introduction to learning spaces, which kind of got buried until I
1: ended up teaching college later. So I'm sure this question is going to pop up for those listening, but give us the name of the novel. You said it's been res- resurrected. So if anyone looking for that, what's the name that they should should search for there?
2: It's called Figurski at Finhorn on acid. Um, okay. And if you, you can find it at figursky at finhorn on acid.com is uh, where it's uh, located. It's got three every combination of three characters, three places, and three artifacts is kind of the basic structure of the of the novel.
1: So I'm really fascinated by this idea that learning space in the physical environment took a while to be considered, right? You had you you mentioned that initially learning spaces were designed by technologists, and only up until a certain point were the educators involved. I'm also fascinated by this idea that one's career whether it's writing or teaching or educating that uh, those can be mutually enforcing right so you have these learning spaces that actually can contribute to kind of mutually enforce the ability of a teacher to you know transmit knowledge or you know encourage learning but now we're, we're kind of moving into learning space within a digital environment, and I feel like there are still those early adopters or there's there's still a lot of people you know, grappling with this idea of how do we make the digital learning space conducive to learning? How do we make it mutually enforcing, uh, to use your phrase there? And you give us some guidance on this. You, you've you developed this uh, Learning Space Rating System, or the LSRS. Uh, and this, I guess, is to assess the potential. Uh, I'm going to quote you here. It, quote, assesses the potential of physical env- environments to enable teaching and learning engagement. Is that correct? And can, what can you expand upon in, with regards to the LSRS and how it's helpful with this initiative of designing good learning spaces.
2: Yeah, and uh, you're right. The LSRS is about physical learning spaces. And uh, so far that means mostly formal learning spaces. uh, So uh, that is classrooms. And yeah, it's a tool for measuring the design of these classrooms and the degree to which they can facilitate multiple modalities of learning and teaching, we're on version three now, and uh, do credit to my colleagues uh, three different groups of colleagues have been I've been with it th- for three versions now, and uh, we released version three last year after um, a lot of testing and feedback from the higher ed community mainly on the earlier version so it's a rating system which means it has a series of credits like the lead system uh, that is commonly used in the U.S. for rating green building standards that many people are familiar with, or the well building standards, which is uh, more used in the U.K., I think, but somewhat used in the U.S. These systems apply metrics to aspects of the built environment. So LEED, as many people know, measures sustainability features. And the well system measures things that impact from the environment, impact health and well-being. The LSRS is intended to measure aspects of the built environment that impact learning. And uh, there's plenty of overlap between learning and health and well-being. And so uh, the well system is definitely complementary to the uh, LSRS. And I, I, and I you know recommend people look at that also. So the LSRS has... Two, uh, seven sections in two basic parts, two main parts. And part A is focused on the uh, global or macro level, uh, the campus context, and its sections are integration with campus context, planning and design process, and support and operations. Quick examples of uh, credits within say support and operations uh, are called uh, training of the support team, uh, faculty instructor development, where you get points for training uh, faculty to take advantage of the capabilities of learning space. Then part B has four sections and it's kind of about the stuff that goes into the spaces, the design and affordances, the actual uh, things So its sections are environmental quality, layout and furnishings, technology and tools, and inclusion. So you get credits or you don't get credits for things like um, seating density, how many square feet per student, having lots of uh, visual displays and and writable surfaces. I often joke that we call them writable surfaces, but really all surfaces are writable but not all services are <laughs> <It's> erasable. <true. laughs> so anyway, we should yeah, call right. them erasable
1: surfaces. So the LSRS feels like it could be applied not just to a classroom or campus environment, but it could be applied to co-working spaces, office spaces, creative studios. Would you agree with that? To some extent. It's pretty specific to
2: classrooms, but many of the principles, I agree can be
1: generalized to to the, to uh, those kinds of environments and how does this evolve is it part of the plan for this to evolve into considerations for the digital spaces that we're now learning through and and partaking in as as learners and educators no because i would say that the flow has been rather the other way
2: around that is There's research about, well, there's also research that our stuff is based on, but there's research about designing online interactions and online spaces that in some cases we've been inspired by or tried to say, how does this apply to physical space? But that's not what we claim to have expertise on. And that's a whole other thing, Uh, interaction design and so on. It's a whole field with a, all its own set of uh, research and expertise. But, you know, we intersect with that. And and importantly, because all experiences are hybrid or blended. So you're, you're, you're never, you always have one foot in physical, almost always one foot in a physical space, physical learning space, even if it's your bedroom or a coffee shop and one foot in online spaces. And so thinking about how they work together is
1: important right but you're suggesting that the framework that you've developed here actually intersects with other frameworks it's not intended to be an all inclusive framework applied to both hybrid online and physical exactly yeah okay great and let's say i'm you know senior administrator vice provost maybe even president of a university and i want to go through this exercise of taking the assessment, if, if that's what it is, but basically applying the LSRS to my campus and to my classrooms. How would one go about that?
2: Well, you download the tool from Educause with whom we've partnered recently. And there's, uh, you can Google Learning Space Rating System or there's a vanity URL, learningspaceratingsystem.org uh, that'll take you to the Educause site. And then you download the right now it's a it's a PDF. And then there's a score sheet that uh, you can download also. The one little hoop you have to jump through is you need to have a profile on the Educause site, which uh, if you're one of those people you just described, it's very likely you already have a profile on Educause. But if anyone doesn't, you don't have to be in higher ed. Or you don't have to be anything. Anyone can quickly establish a profile and a login. Then once you do that, you're good to go. the The reason we do that is to so we can gather some data about you know who's using who's using the tool. And then uh, you know when you have it, then you would work with your. It's nice to get a cross uh, disciplinary. Group to do this kind of rating. That is, uh, we we would we recommend having someone from teaching and learning, someone from IT area or AV uh, area, classroom support, uh, classroom the, the the classroom people. Obviously, if if that's depending how um, your place is organized. If you're renovating spaces or building new spaces, then bring in the architects. I mean, you know, and, and uh, get students to participate, and then it's a self-rating system so far. So there isn't uh, a set of, uh, we don't have a set of trained, you know, raters who can go around and certify your results. So it's really a self for your own information for the most part. And it's very useful in comparing your spaces, your your worst spaces with your better spaces. Look at the scores, look at the different dimensions in which they differ, identify weak spots, and uh, you get a really good um, evaluation of your classroom stock or individual classrooms.
1: And you mentioned this can be applied to the campus environment as well. So it's a macro assessment as well as a micro assessment, or is it geared more toward the classrooms?
2: Well, the macro part is going to be the ratings for that section are going to be mostly the same for every classroom because they'd ask questions like w- about your support and operations, uh, operation, okay. how you train people, how you, what the support is, what the planning and design process is like. So does it do some of those things I just mentioned? Do, does it include a diverse set of students in your uh, planning process? Are you uh, syncing up with your other campus strategic plans? Is there a master plan for learning spaces on your campus? So It's all those kind of global questions. Are you tr- preparing faculty to teach in your spaces? What's the training like? Do you have mm. an online module? Do you have people that go and hold their hands? So those are all global campus level and sometimes political questions
1: in, in, that, in that part. So you do the assessment, there is some reflection, some self-reflection, basically, you have to answer honestly. Do you then get a kind of a report on the areas you should fix, or is it sort of intuitive based on how you answer those questions of what remedies or fixes or changes are needed? Yeah,
2: I mean, uh, it's, you know, it's a self-analysis Uh, Basically, Mm -hmm. and it's apparent what the range might be and what the areas of weakness might be. Right. We've said we think and one of the drivers for creating this was for those of us working on campus campuses is to simply call attention to the state of the learning spaces, because almost every campus has all these legacy spaces that are, you know, sometimes pretty crappy. And so, the a classic strategy for uh, those of us advocating for uh, resources to uh, change that mm-hmm. has been to take those senior administrators and have a meeting with them, but meet in the worst classrooms that you can find that you have, and uh, and, and, <laughs> right. and, and and because they have they may not have ever been there. And so you sit down there, and you might say, "Well, this scored you know twenty one or something out of." 87 or whatever it might be and here's why and they're like we didn't know we had classrooms like this we're like yeah so you know you want students to to learn in here and uh have an equitable experience and so on so uh but yeah it's a self it's self-analysis you know to get things done at stanford you usually have to um Usually want to compare to the peer institutions, so everybody compares to their peer institutions. Right. you know we sure. play that well at Harvard they're doing this, you know and that's whatever the c- comparable thing is at state university, community college, at wherever, you can compare, but we cautioned that LSRS scores are not really com- comparable, right? because there's no everyone's measuring their own spaces. And so it's yeah. it's kind of subjective to your campus. So they're most, although maybe on gross scores, you could say, well, they rated all their
1: classrooms X and ours average Y. Well, I like this. I appreciate this ability to benchmark against peer institutions, or if you are a community college, give yourself an honest assessment and then see maybe how you stack up against the Ivy League score. Um, so thanks for taking some time to walk us through the mechanics. I, I know we got, you know, pretty tactical in, in terms of how this works. Uh, maybe we can take a bigger or broader view now and just walk us through the rubric. It's, it's really fascinating that you've developed such an intelligent rubric and identified, you know, those aspects, those criteria, if you will, on, you know, what makes or what enhances the learning experience. So, how did you come up with this rubric, and how did you identify those ideal aspects of learning spaces? Yeah, that's uh,
2: that's a great question. We've strived uh, to uh, base all of our asserted best practices on educational research, and we provide a list of references and resources there on the LSRS site. Those are what we, you know, base our our claims on in this question of how can the space influence the lear- learning that takes place there? It's a crucial. It's a crucial one. I think above all, we should remember that the quality of any learning experience is mostly determined by the students and the instructors, uh, more so than by the physical environment. Are the students motivated to learn? How effective are the instructor's teaching practices, the design of the curriculum, and so on. But research does show that uh, aspects of the built environment can impact learning. And so for starters, I think it's helpful to think about Maslow's famous old uh, pyramid or hierarchy of needs. If you apply that to learning, you can, you know, see that, you know, at the bottom level, if your basic safety and physiological needs aren't being met, you're not going to be in a position to be learning. You can't learn very well if you're hungry, thirsty, too hot, uh, too cold, uh, and so on. So the, 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 the physical environment has to address those needs. And we see that like in developing countries and so on, you know, like that doesn't happen sometimes, but we're also getting on a higher level, we're getting constantly messages from the environment that impact our cognition. And some would say in the theory of um, embodied cognition uh, suggests that you, re- you really, we only experience things in the context of a physical space and in interaction with that space. So, uh, you know, and a lot of these messages are non-conscious, you know, the air pressure, uh, the temperature, and so on. But they affect our behavior and they affect our cognition. We're affected by the materials that are used in spaces, the shape and size and colors of rooms, how high the ceiling is, changes people's behavior, uh, whether they're sharp edges or round, smooth, round curves. Uh, And humans respond usually non-consciously to a lot of those those, uh, elements of the environment. And on another level, we get social and cultural messages from the environment. Um, And so a room filled with rows of fixed seats facing a stage and a lectern gives a message implicit in the uh, so-called uh, designed pedagogy or um, architecture that gives the message that learning in that space is going to be about somebody delivering knowledge to uh, rows of mostly passive listeners. And if you walk into a room that's decentered, it has no stage, and it has clusters of small mobile tables, says that some the activities that are gonna take place there are gonna involve interaction with other, with other humans. So um, this all extends to the affordances uh, of the technologies that are provided in spaces. So if you wanna enable certain activities and LSRS is all about what activities are enabled, right? Cause we can't control what happens in the space. That's controlled by the teaching but we can enable things to happen by the design of the room. So um, we wanna enable activities that research has shown are effective for learning. And so provide tools uh, for those.
1: That's a, a great gift that you are providing to those who want to enable learning and improve these spaces or design these ideal spaces from scratch. I think it's also commendable that you've stayed true to your course, stayed true to your vision that this is about the physical environment. And what I heard you just share now too is that you can't control the educator or the teaching or the activities, right? You could be in a hot room (laughs) with sharp edges, very small and have maybe some of the best activities and the best educator in that room. It's going to change the whole experience. So I appreciate these, the boundaries or the parameters that you've kind of put outside of this framework. But I think the framework itself is a gift.
0: And now we're going to take a quick break. Want more of the most important higher ed news, insights and perspectives, but don't have time to look for it? Visit unincorporated.com to subscribe to our higher education news brief, where you'll get the top stories in higher ed delivered straight to your inbox every Monday. And now back to the discussion.
1: So what compelled you to create this gift? What compelled you? What was the the vision or the impetus, the genesis of feeling compelled to create the LSRS?
2: Yeah, well, when we started in the early 2010s, I think the first beta version, we released in 2014. We could see that a substantial community had evolved already around learning space design in higher, in higher ed and uh, spurred by early work. Uh, there was a book by Diana Oblinger uh, called Learning Spaces that we were having conferences and workshops. There's a discussion group in EDUCAUSE called the Learning Space Design Community Group with hundreds of members. So all these discussions have, happening and people sharing their experiences. And I think we felt that for that community to evolve, that there was a bit of a vacuum in terms of um, best practices or common practices and, and a shared taxonomy, shared language, and uh, not only to, you know, encourage more research in the field, which was lacking early on Uh, but yeah to begin to you know create a shared language that we could use not only within our institutions but across institutions and with those outside like architects and designers and av integrators and other groups that we work with on campus to uh you know build new spaces and 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 renovate uh old spaces and i think we tried to reflect the language and taxonomies that we were hearing uh you know from our colleagues uh in all those areas and then i guess at the same time you know kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying uh here's here's a here's a here's a way to try to measure things and i think the other thing i think i mentioned previously is that we, for very practical and political purposes, those of us working on campuses, we wanted a tool that we could use to call attention to spaces that needed attention to try to get resources. That everybody's always, you know, working and competing to get those resources to address those needs, and uh, that's when we would bring people into the, you know, into the crappy classrooms. So, uh, yeah, I think those
1: were a lot of the motivations. So there was a need for a shared language and a shared taxonomy, and there was a need for educators and administrators to substantiate the needs that they could recognize intuitively or otherwise and make a case for why money or a line item in a budget should be applied to a learning space.
2: Yeah, you, you said
1: it. So will this one day then be the standard? Is it the standard now? Like, is it to learning space, is LSRS to learning spaces what lead is to architecture? <laughs>
2: that's that's our aspiration. But I'd say we're, you know, we're a ways, we're a ways from that. And, and for some people, it's working like that. Um, you know, we don't have a lead It has, a, you know, is a very well-established system. It, it is Analogous because you know in lead you can get a gold star, platinum star, whatever whatever you get from lead uh, for the design of your building, right? And then people when they actually use it, they leave the doors open and the air conditioners running, right? So it's like how it's actually used is is a separate situation from how it was designed to be used. But anyway, yeah, we would like to get there, but we're not there. Who's competing with you? Well, I don't know that there's any direct competition. I'd say there are complementary efforts, like the well-building standards are very well developed. They really uh, have a great website, and you can drill down on all their uh, criteria, and they're well-researched, and they have standards, I think, that are more um, objective. And uh, so that's a complementary effort, I think. And then uh, I should mention FlexSpace, uh, flexspace, F L E X space.org, another complimentary effort. And we work closely with FlexSpace as another partner to LSRS. um, And they are a repository searchable database of learning spaces where uh, anyone, members of the community, can upload photos and um, information about their spaces to share with everybody so people can go and search for, you know, uh, we're going to renovate our lecture hall. So let's meet, let us me see good examples of ones and descriptions of ones that have been done elsewhere. And uh, in FlexSpace, you can upload spaces and your LSRS score. So there's a little tool for putting in your LSRS scores.
1: Um, nice. Yeah. What makes for a good score? What's the average you know,
2: I can't answer that. I have to look at the instrument and and uh, go back and add up the add up the tools or look at the score sheet. And and some of the some of the elements, uh, some of the credits have multiple. You know, you get one point for doing this, two points for doing this, and three points if you do. So some of them
1: have multiple levels of point you can earn. Okay, fair enough. So the vision statement, if you will. Uh, we covered that. We covered the how-to and the mechanics, you know, the, the, the what's included and, and how you might implement this. Uh, talked a little bit about the need, you know, why this was created in the first place. Have you seen results? Has it made an impact? What changes or, you know, where have you seen, I, I guess, the evolution or the changes in, in learning environments over the last couple decades or over this, uh, this work that you've been engaged in?
2: Well, I think it would be difficult to uh, claim too much about LSRS causing improvements in learning spaces. I think it's more that it's been helpful to people in um, assessing their spaces and moving forward and having, and it's starting to show up in um, research papers. So for example, so um, we're starting to see published research that has used Uh, LSRS. Uh, There's one about um, comparing LSRS scores before and after the pandemic, for example. But um, I think adoption has increased and now we're getting data about its usage. Uh, There's thousands of downloads and we know who's using it. And so there's lots of interest at conferences and online discussion So, I mean, those are the only real measures we have. We have lots of anecdotal accounts of people using the tools at their
1: institutions and that having helped them. Yeah. Would you agree that learning spaces in general have improved over the last decade or two? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. All because of the
1: LSRS.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You heard it it here
1: first, ladies and gentlemen. Exactly.
2: Exactly. But sure, absolutely, because there's just a lot more awareness, also because teaching is changing. And so as faculty are using more active learning pedagogies and have been persuaded that active learning from their own research, showing that active learning pedagogies are more effective for teaching this discipline or that discipline, um, then they're demanding spaces that help them do that. So, uh, so uh, I mean, you know, it's an ongoing project to convert a vast legacy built environment of classrooms that were built to support the pedagogy of 100 years ago and adapt it to these other modalities. But that is happening everywhere. And if, if money were no object, everyone would rebuild and uh, retool all their classrooms.
1: Right. Every space would have erasable surfaces and props and post-it notes and anything that you might need for the active learning. It it, reminds me of, and it's reminiscent of the Montessori school philosophy and having like workstations, right, that the the student goes to throughout the the course of a day. But Yeah, I I agree that I too have seen an evolution in learning spaces, as well as just within our industry of design in general, there's been more interest in understanding of how design can help organizations continue to grow and help business move forward, right? So I think there's just a general kind of cultural or societal shift in understanding that design, whether it's physical or otherwise is meaningful to the value of, you know, that, that artifact that you're creating. It's interesting you mentioned Montessori
2: because the teacher, the mentor teacher that I learned from early about learning spaces was Montessori trained along with other pedagogy. She had mashed up Montessori with other things, but Montessori is very much about, and I taught in a Montessori school briefly too, Is very much about those spaces and space and the whole language of space and that learning is going to take place in the context of a space that has some design, as you're saying, some design to it.
1: Yeah, the the design thinking applied to a space in order to enhance the activity, in this case, the activity being teaching and learning or the transfer of knowledge. It's powerful. It's really powerful. So there's another emphasis right now with the DEI, or I think in higher education circles, it's EDI, but equity, diversity, and inclusion. So how can this system, or in what ways, I should ask, how can this system help promote some of the equity, diversity, and inclusion standards or considerations that we're trying to uphold now in our institutions?
2: Yeah, indeed we are. And in fact, the largely- the impetus, much of the impetus for our version three, was exactly to promote inclusion, and apply it to the design of learning spaces. So I mentioned in reeling off the sections, we have a dedicated section now. We had had smatterings of trying to uh, talk about inclusive learning spaces in version two, but for version three, we created a dedicated section. Called inclusion, and um, I think you had a recent podcast with uh, about DEI with uh, Tricia Dow. So I know you're you're uh, looking you're looking into this. So we have this dedicated section in LSRS. We do feel that these notions permeate though uh, throughout it. We have um, a lot of uh, interrelated related credits and so on. So so an example would be in uh, section two, which is about the planning and design process. I mentioned we give points for creating diverse, inclusive design teams. And that, that's where it starts. Who's doing the designing? Who are you including? Uh, that are a representative of the, lear- of the learning community. So inclusion begins, you know, well before you're designing the actual space. But this question, is first of all, I guess we have to say, go back to that the main way that you create an inclusive learning environment is through teaching practice, through pedagogy. So teachers who are trained in inclusive teaching practices, which we're not addressing in the LSRS, although we're informed by those practices, those teachers can implement inclusive practices in virtually any space. What we were talking about before is kind of good teaching trumps bad spaces and bad teaching trumps good spaces. You can have a room that (laughs) scores a thousand percent on the LSRS and there's no guarantee that inclusive teaching is going to take place there. However, uh, our goal is to articulate some things in the built environment that can, first of all, do no harm. To inclusion efforts, and I, maybe I'll give an example of how harm has definitely been done in the past. Um, second, to facilitate enhance those inclusive teaching practices. Now we're treading a little bit of, of new ground insofar as there's no there's little direct research on the de- relationship between space design and inclusive. And inclusion; uh, we use other concepts that are established by research, including from social psychology and so on. So let me let me kind of go th- let me go through that because this is a part that I was uh, heavily involved in in uh, version three myself, and it's an uh, article about this I wrote for Educause Review too. Um, so th- we our approach is to take three aspects of inclusion, which we think are not mutually exclusive, but are really uh, overlapping and kind of like three perspectives or lenses. And those are physical inclusion, cognitive inclusion, and cultural inclusion. So first, physical inclusion credit is designed to welcome learners with different physical abilities, not only by providing access but also the opportunity to participate fully in the learning experience. So, in other words, we emphasize people participating fully or equitably, going beyond the ADA requirements to just have wheelchairs be able to get into the space and line up against the back. That's not equitable participation. To sit in the only be allowed to sit in the back or on the margins of a space, right? So, so. Everything about physical uh, inclusion is about making sure everyone can have the same a chance to have the same experience in a space, including access to all the affordances of the room. Secondly, um, we've, what we've called cognitive inclusion is really about applying UDL, which is Universal Design for Learning, which is a set of pedag- pedagogy, a set of teaching practices, and applying that to what does that mean in terms of physical design of the space? So with UDL, you want to offer students multiple ways to receive and engage with and express information. And that's because students, not only on the autism spectrum, but all students, people in general, Have a wide range of cognitive strategies of how they best receive information, engage with environments, express knowledge, and so on. So, in UDL, teachers present content in verbal, visual, experiential ways. uh, And likewise, students should be able to process information, respond, and express themselves in in all those ways. So, this, this really comes down to facilitating multiple modalities for learning and teaching, providing space to move around, writing surfaces, multiple displays, and other technologies. And that's the, you know, as we've talked about, that's the main thrust of the LSRS itself. So in that way, also inclusion is at the heart of the LSRS, I think. Now, the third area Is is the diceiest or the most complex or difficult? We've called cultural inclusion, Uh, and we've wrestled. The LSRS team has wrestled with this for years. Actually, how do you quantify cultural inclusion? How can the physical environment help create a sense of belonging and make spaces welcoming and inviting to different people? And the way that we have thought about it is in the sense of social identities, because there is a strong research base in social psychology about social identities and identity threat, as it's called. And it suggests that markers of social identity and social identity are things like, um, you know, groups that we identify with, like, based on gender, race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, and so on. And markers of identity in spaces do impact, and there's research for this, student performance and student learning, and certainly their sense of belonging. Uh, Everyone has a need for a sense of belonging. And these identities, of course, are complex, as we know, it's called intersectionality, that is most of us identify with more than one of these groups, right? So threats to identity, uh, one of them is called stereotype threat, which is the perception of um, negative stereotypes about a group that you might belong to. Those have been shown to impair learning and student success. So obviously the presence of those is um, not a welcome or inclusive factor, right? So, So this fundamental dilemma is, What are the trade-offs between removing those bad or non-inclusive, non-welcoming markers of social identity that might make people uncomfortable and adding markers of social identity that might make people feel welcome? So that's kind of how we framed it. And speaking of doing no harm, removing unwelcome markers, we should note that some many of our campus spaces were designed historically in a context of exclusion of excluding certain groups for example large groups like women or um, ethnic minorities and for years nobody even thought about you know naming a building or naming a residence hall to honor someone who had enslaved some of the people living there's recent ancestors you know or um, example and the you know examples abound uh, welcoming a new female ethnic minority faculty member in a reception room that and the room is lined with pictures of of uh, white men all around and so you know the obvious question is do i belong here and uh, just a couple more things because this cultural inclusion is is a really interesting area and we really want to hear from people about their successes and, and uh, failures with designing spaces for this. A trend in modernist architecture has been to generally to remove cultural markers and make spaces kind of neutral or uh, culture-free. And, and you and I might say that's not really possible to make a space neutral. But you asked about a research about online learning environments, and there is uh, some research that we've taken and been inspired by there that adding visual, verbal, and symbolic elements can have an effect. So uh, changing the language in the description of a STEM course to make it more gender neutral or making it um, uh, more of a visual representations of women in promoting those courses those studies about that showing that that actually increases enrollment of women by making them feel more welcome. So the same thing we've suggest will apply to physical spaces, can apply.
1: Well, I think that's a great framework. And to remind everyone listening, this uh, framework of, you know, promoting inclusivity through physical, cognitive and cultural markers, this has been applied to version three and is available for download. If you go to the learningspaceratingsystem.org, you can actually find that information uh, readily available. Any, we, we've covered a lot. I've really appreciated uh, learning directly from you in this space, in this environment that we've created together today. Are there any other thoughts or, I don't know, final recommendations or considerations that you want to leave with the audience?
2: Well maybe one that you um, alluded to earlier which is that we hope that principles of the lsrs apply not just to classrooms but beyond and we a future thing we might do is take on informal spaces so-called informal learning spaces which is basically everywhere else <laughs> right but libraries <laughs> residence right. halls student unions we know that most learning takes place Outside the classroom, not inside the classroom. So, in that sense, the general campus environment is even more important. And so, I guess I would just encourage people to uh, think about the whole campus, including the online environment, because everything is hybrid or blended as one big learning space or learning environment. And uh, as you've also suggested, think about that from a design perspective how do people move through those spaces? How do they talk to each other? The spaces talk to each other, the technologies talk to each other, and how do students interact with faculty outside the classroom? Because that's also important to student success. And so the design of the built environment and outdoor spaces as well have an influence on on all that.
1: Yeah, that's great. So you're alluding to an LSRS for informal spaces, which are basically all of those other spaces that we learn in. One of those spaces that I can attest to where I'm constantly learning is in my car, right? So maybe maybe we could, uh, we could apply some of this framework to an in-transit university or in-transit uh, learning space, which are our, our cars or our subway systems, our public transportation. But Uh, This is is absolutely a delight. Richard, thanks for spending time with me today. I know you've brought a lot of value to not only your field and your work, but those listening. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks a lot, Ian.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. For more higher ed specific resources, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please visit unincorporated.com.